The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone. Nice to see you again. Nice to see people from Perth coming here as well. <laughs> That's really good. So, uh, welcome. And uh, I, we're going to talk today about the things that I've been talking about over the last seven days. Because I'm too lazy to think of anything new, so I'm just going to talk about the same thing here. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to be lazy sometimes. So I think laziness is underestimated in this life. Uh, yeah, we always want to work really hard. Uh, but um, it's not really being lazy, but it's more like being wise about spending one's time in a good way. Uh, yeah, and sometimes you over-prepare or you overdo things, uh, and sometimes you just need to let go and just kind of go with the flow, uh, and it makes for a much easier life. Uh. So I want to talk about some of the things that I've been talking about over the last, uh, what is it, eight days or whatever it is. Uh. And uh, some of these things are, of course, when I teach retreats, when I teach anything really, I always focus a lot about the word of the Buddha himself, because to me this is the most inspiring and interesting part of everything in Buddhism, is actually the word of the Buddha. And it's fascinating. You find that when you start reading the word of the Buddha, and you go into the details, uh, you go into the trying to understand how it all fits together into this beautiful jigsaw puzzle, this beautiful picture with all these little pieces. Somehow it creates one picture. Uh, why does it create one picture? Well, because the insight of the Buddha is one big insight into the nature of reality. And then, of course, he spends a lifetime expanding on that, explaining to us what this actually means. And that you get all these little pieces and they come together in that one picture which emerged on the way uh, at the time of the Buddha's awakening here. So this is um, what we're going to talk about. And, uh, you know, one of the things that... I have found, and I think many people find in Buddhism, is that very often it can be really hard to interpret. You know, you get one teaching saying A, as I like to say, another teaching saying negative A. <laughs> they are diametrically opposed to each other, A and negative A. Which one is right? And there is only one arbiter of the truth in Buddhism. And that is the word of the Buddha. If you want to understand how to practice, if you want to uncover some of the details about how meditation practice actually works, how to be more kind, yeah, how to live in a good way, it really comes down to the suttas. And that's the gold standard for what Buddhism is all about. And... Um, I'm sometimes surprised that people say, oh, you know, the word of the Buddha is all fine and well, but, uh, you know, there are other teachings as well that are equally interesting. Yeah? And I think we forget that all of Buddhism is based on the foundation of the word of the Buddha. The rest is superstructure. The rest only makes sense in light of the word of the Buddha. The rest is just commentary in a sense, yeah? And right now, <laughs> what I teach here is like the latest commentary on the word of the Buddha, right? Everything is just commentary in a certain way. Huh? And everything has no meaning unless you assume that the Buddha was awakened. Huh? And for this reason, because this is the foundation of everything else, this is the starting point for the whole history of Buddhism, whether it's Mahayana, Theravada, whatever. There's something extra powerful about the word of the Buddha. And if you want to have real confidence in what this path is about, you have to come back to that. I know sometimes people, you know, in lay life, they kind of despair because it can be hard as a lay person to discern these things. But I think by using these teachings, especially as a teacher, as a monastic, and using these teachings to as a foundation, I think everyone gets more familiar with them and it gives you all some degree of access to these things uh, uh, because uh, uh, once you start to get a feeling for these teachings, you start to understand how to interpret, uh, how to deal with them uh, and how to live accordingly. Uh. So we have been talking about uh, uh, meditation over the last uh, fortnight, a lot about meditation, really about the whole path, but meditation is often an important focus. And, uh, of course, in meditation, one of the critical factors for meditation is the idea of mindfulness. So I want to talk a little bit about mindfulness, uh, what it is, but especially how to give rise to it, uh, 
how it is used in meditation. Yeah, we looked at the Satipatthana Sutta for the last couple of days on the retreat, or day and a half, or whatever it is. And so I want to talk about some of the things that come out of understanding mindfulness from the Buddha's point of view. What does the Buddha have to say about this? Does it fit with the modern interpretations and all of these kind of things? Yeah, This is really what I want to talk about. And it's important maybe to understand at the outset that mindfulness is a wonderful quality. It is not just a technical term that we use kind of in the suttas to show how everything fits together, yet this A leads to B and B leads to C, and mindfulness is in the middle, so you have to practice mindfulness, otherwise it doesn't lead to C. That's kind of cold, right? Okay, A leading to B leading to this is like a mathematical equation, and mathematical equations don't really touch the heart normally. One plus one is two. It doesn't give rise to a big emotional reaction. Yeah, you think, okay, it's probably true, but it doesn't really kind of drive you forward and to kind of to uh, live well and all of these kind of things. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's got to be, it's, there's got to be heart in these things. Uh, there has to be emotion in the Buddhist teachings. Uh, and if there is no emotion, it doesn't really work. Yeah. This is what faith is about. This is what giving rise to uh, all the, why we do the anusattis, the pamoja, the piti, the sukha, the metta, the compassion, all of these beautiful things. Uh, they are emotional at the end of the day, and that's why they are powerful. Human beings are driven by emotion. We're not driven by cold facts. Uh, and this is just how it works. Uh, so what about mindfulness? What is it? And mindfulness is such a Beautiful quality in so many ways. Yeah, mindfulness makes you feel alive to the moment. It makes you be able to interact with the world right here and right now. Instead of living in the past and the future, or living in some kind of fantasy realm, you are here. You know what's going on. You can react to the people around you. Yeah, you feel what is going on. And that is very, it's a wonderful thing to feel alive rather than being lost in thought and lost in all kinds of things. But entering the present moment is in itself a very, very valuable and beautiful thing. So mindfulness is just, it feels good. It's not like cold thing that we have to do because it's part of the path. Sometimes the path becomes too theoretical and not kind of immediate enough in our lives. So this is one reason why mindfulness is so important. Uh, mindfulness is also important because you feel empowered by mindfulness. I always like to point out that in the suttas there are mindfulness is called uh, uh, adipateya. Adipateya means it gives you a sense of, well, literally it means like lordship or something like that. Uh, yeah, so it means that you feel in charge of yourself. Uh, very often, if you are lost in thought or you are dreaming about the thing, sitting, you know, hanging out in the past or in the future, hoping for a nice future or regretting what you did in the past, it means that we're not really able to uh, react to the present moment. We're not really in charge of what is going on here and now. But the feeling of being in charge of yourself is really empowering. Yeah, it means that you can react appropriately in the present moment uh, because you know what is going on, especially you know what is going on with yourself, uh, with your own mind, with your own actions. Uh, so you are empowered. Uh, this idea of feeling empowered is actually very satisfying and very, uh, you feel that instead of other people kind of pulling the strings all the time, uh, you are in charge of your own life. Uh, it doesn't mean you pull the strings of other people. Yeah, that's not what it means. Uh, you are empowered. Yeah, I can pull the strings of all the people around me. Uh, get Ajahn Nisarno to give a talk exactly when I want to hear a talk. Uh, get Ajahn Sadaro to do the right thing. Yeah, this is not what it means. It means that you are empowered by yourself. In fact, if you try to pull the strings of other people, uh, what happens is that you reduce your own mindfulness uh, because it is a kind of, uh, it's a bit sort of, uh, not quite right, yeah, to going around manipulating other people, yeah, yeah, unless maybe you are the Buddha and he manipulates you to do good, then maybe it's okay. But uh, that's called the Buddhist brainwashing, yeah, which is really, really nice. Yeah. So this is what mindfulness is about. Yeah, it empowers everything. It makes this path work. Yeah. It gives you access eventually to samadhi. Gives access to insight. Gives access to all of these wonderful things uh, on the path. Uh, and so it is very, it's a marvelous quality, and it's really worthwhile developing for that reason. So how do we develop mindfulness? And I'm going to tell you, first of all, how not to develop it. Yeah? <laughs> so don't listen to this if you don't want to hear that, because sometimes people get confused. They think, was that, am I supposed to develop that in that way, or was it, what did he say again? So 
So the, um, the way not to develop it, or the way that is not found in the suttas, uh, but is very common in Buddhist circles, uh, is the idea that you become mindful by being mindful. Uh. So you try really hard in daily life to be as mindful as you can, and through the act of being mindful, uh, we then become more mindful in the future. Uh. So when you sit down on your bottom, yeah, on a nice seat, uh, and you kind of want to watch your breath, or you just want to chill out and be quiet, uh, then you are more mindful because you have been mindful throughout the day. It's like the idea is like if mindfulness is like a muscle. If you train a muscle, and then the muscle gets strong and nicely trained, uh, and then you become stronger in the future. But uh, it is not like a muscle. Uh, yeah? And this is important to understand. It's a very different kind of thing yeah, that makes us mindful. Uh, this whole idea arises out of certain passages in the suttas, and you have to be very careful in interpreting these things. Uh, you, some of you will know because, well, hopefully you know because you've been on my retreat, so hopefully you can, <laughs> that's kind of now burnt into your mind, never to be lost again. Uh, uh, and the, this one passage which uh, talks about, you know, in the first part of the Satipatthana Sutta, it says you are mindful when going in, uh, going out, coming back, uh, um, looking aside, looking ahead, looking aside. Uh, <laughs> stretching out your limbs, pulling your limbs and pulling them back in again, eating, chewing, talking, sleeping, all of these kind of things. You act quickly a comprehension. And because it is there in the Satipatthana Sutta, the idea seems to be very common in Buddhist circles. You just have to be mindful in everything you do. And then when you're mindful in everything you do, you are enhancing your mindfulness. But um, people sometimes get stressed out by these teachings, yeah, because it's really hard to be mindful in everything you do. Huh? And sometimes I know people have told me this, oh, I try to be mindful all day, and I just feel exhausted at the end of the day, because it's just so hard to be mindful all the time. And then if you are exhausted, huh, you lose your mindfulness. Yeah, because when you're exhausted, you just want to, oh, I had enough, can't be mindful anymore, so you kind of zonk out, and that's it. <laughs> that's what happens sometimes. So you have to be smart about these things. Uh, the Buddha never says anywhere that mindfulness gives rise to mindfulness. Uh, he actually says something very different in how mindfulness comes around uh, or, or comes about. And what he says, the way to become mindful is to practice the first six factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, the first six factors are the causes. Uh, they are the condition for the arising of mindfulness. That's how you become mindful. Uh, and I'm sure many of you are probably objecting to what I say now. You think, yeah, yeah, there's probably some truth to that, but you know, maybe not all true. You have to be mindful in daily life, right? Uh, well, true, you have to be mindful in daily life, but not in the way that we sometimes think. Yeah? And this is kind of the point. Uh, it is not mindfulness for its own sake, yeah? but it's mindfulness to establish the first six factors, because the first six factors of the path, they are what give rise to mindfulness when you sit down and you want to meditate. So there's a particular kind of mindfulness. It's an awareness of how you live, whether you're living in the right way, whether you're living with compassion, with understanding, with kindness. How do you deal with people? It's always difficult it's with people in life. Yeah, Life is always hard. People treat us badly. They say the wrong thing. They think about it is in the wrong way. And sometimes, you know, when you are on a committee of the BSV, the committee work is really hard because you are coming against people all the time and you have different opinions, different views. And I have a lot of compassion for people on committees. It's really tough to be on these committees. And you really get a chance to kind of practice your patience and compassion, all of these kind of things when you are on a committee. It really, can be really hard. But it's true in all life, right? All life is like that. So that is where the work needs to be done. That is what mindfulness comes from. It comes from our ability to live our ordinary life well. So you are mindful to the extent that you know what you're doing. Okay, I'm saying this. You know what you're saying to some other person. You're not kind of just babbling off at full speed without any things come out of your mouth before you know it. And you even have an idea of what you are thinking. Yeah, you have an idea of how you treat people in your mind on a daily basis. And that is the kind of mindfulness we require. This is not the mindfulness of Satipatthana. This is not the mindfulness that comes in meditation. But it's like a preliminary kind of mindfulness that comes first. Yeah? And then comes the mindfulness of Satipatthana, which we really, what we really mean by mindfulness is that 
is the mindfulness of meditation practice, and then you carry on the practice from there. So you have to kind of understand the sequence here, right? When you get the sequence right, then you understand what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to live your life. So really, it is about morality. That is really what it is about. And you want to have sufficient awareness to be able to live really moral. Then you build up the real mindfulness, the mindfulness that you bring with you and you take with you into meditation practice. That's the real thing here. So it's a stepwise thing here. And maybe you think, and if I were you, maybe I would think the same. Why does this matter so much? Well, who cares if we call it, you know, real mindfulness and meditation, or you call it partial mindfulness in our daily life, or we call it sense restraint, or we call it mindfulness of daily activities, or whatever. Does it really matter? It's just kind of terminology, right? Well, not exactly right. These things matter, because what happens is that if you say that satipatthana practice, which is what we are talking about here, the idea of sati, if we kind of lower the bar... And instead of that being something profound that happens in meditation, when you're watching the breath and you're experiencing, hopefully, peace and stillness and maybe joy and all of these kind of things, if we lower the bar down and we say that satipatthana is something you do in daily life, then what you're doing is that you are lowering down the whole idea of what Buddhism is about. Yeah, if satipatthana, which is the seventh factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, is that is kind of what you do in daily life, okay, eating, 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 walking, walking, this kind of things, right? Then uh, the result of that satipatthana, which is supposed to be samadhi, deep meditation, also tends to get lowered, right? Because if one thing is reduced in importance or significance, the result of that is also reduced in importance and significance. So suddenly samadhi becomes much more easily attainable. And you, you know, and we know this, if you have any idea what is happening in the world of Buddhism and how things are discussed in that world, you can see there's a large variety in understanding what, what samadhi actually means, how deep it has to be, yeah? all these kind of things. Yeah? And when samadhi is reduced, because you're reducing the preliminary factors of the path, uh, then the very final result of the path, nibbana, extinguishment, uh, that too is reduced and becomes something very ordinary. Yeah? And then when you go on the internet, you go, you know, you go to someone's website and it says, oh, arahant so-and-so, yeah. yeah. And have you seen that? There's, there's people who kind of claim to be Arahants. And then you go, to, yeah, yeah, I went on the retreat, had some really nice meditation, yeah, I became an Arahant, and I came back afterwards to my ordinary life, and now I'm kind of back to work again and hanging out with my wife and these kind of things. And they have no idea what they're talking about, right? And then this kind of really, and they have lowered everything down to a level whereby it doesn't really match anywhere near what the Buddha was talking about with these things. So uh, it matters, right? It matters to get the terminology even right, to understand what we're doing, what is real satipatthana practice, and what is preliminary mindfulness that we use, not for satipatthana, but for purifying the mind and make the mind clear and ready for meditation later on. It actually matters. So what then are the causes for mindfulness? What are the causes for the kind of mindfulness you need to be able to practice meditation properly? And in the I've just said it's the six first factors of the Noble and Full Path, right? What, what is that? Well, there are it's two things, especially in those first six factors. One is right view, and the other one is morality, you know, the first six factors are really all about morality, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort. Right effort is also about morality, really, about the kind of thinking, kind thoughts, having more compassion, all of these kind of things. So these are the two kind of significant things. Yeah. So if you want to be mindful, if you want to access these beautiful states of mind that come through meditation practice, kindness, morality is the critical aspect and so this is what you need to do. And if you understand how critical it is to advance the spiritual life, to advance the inner happiness, the joy which is kind of released from the world outside, the more ability you have to do that. Because that understanding, yeah, the right view that you have, that 
morality and kindness is important. That informs your conduct in daily life. It's like the right view. And the stronger that right view is, the more your mindfulness is kind of informed by that right view, which enables you to then practice kindness moment to moment, day in, day out, over long, long periods of time. So it is really worthwhile reflecting on this. Yeah? What is it about kindness that enables these things? Why is the spiritual path, first of all, why is the spiritual path so important? And the reason it is so important is because it gives you access to something where you are independent of all the worldly phenomena that are out of control. Yeah? It gives you access to real happiness, real contentment, and all of these kind of things. So the spiritual path is incredibly important. If you don't have a, access to some spiritual meaning in your life, you're always going to be buffeted around by all the streams of the world that are so unreliable and uncertain. Yes, you want to come back to the spiritual life. So if the spiritual life is so important, how do you develop it? And one of the most important foundations there is is kindness. So you have that right view. You understand that kindness is important. And kindness is important. Why? Because you feel good about yourself. Yeah. When you feel good about yourself, when I, I remember this one thing Ajahn Brahma always said, make the present moment the pleasant moment. And it's a nice catchphrase, yeah? but it makes a lot of sense. Because if the present moment is really pleasant, why hanging out in the past? Why hang out in the future? The present is you know, better than either, so you hang out in the present instead. So you live well so as to make the present a happy moment then or not not the moment but present be a happy state or whatever it is uh, i don't like the idea of present moment it's just present yeah there's no moment forget about the moment so so the present becomes really happy the present becomes something pleasant uh, and so you hang out in the present as a consequence uh. so these are kind of some very simple reflections yeah why morality is so important uh, how every time you do something which isn't quite right uh, how you're letting yourself down uh, and you're losing that momentum in moving forward. And you're reducing your mindfulness. The mind becomes a bit more cloudy. The mind becomes a bit more gray, a bit more bland. And it kind of smudges out into the past and the future and doesn't stay uh, pinned into the present. Uh, and this is the problem. So you become very... You, you start to see things from this perspective of right view, uh, why these things matter. Uh, and then when that informs your mindfulness, informs your mind... Uh, then you start to be able to live well, moment to moment, uh, yeah, day in, day out, carrying on. Uh. Then, of course, after a while, you lose it a little bit. Uh, your right view kind of disappears a bit in the background. Uh, you thought you were wise, but the wisdom was only temporarily there because it was supported by cause and conditions. Uh, when those cause and conditions kind of gradually fade away, which is what they do, uh, come back to the Dhamma again, uh, Read some suttas, listen to a nice Dhamma talk which explains things in the right way according to the suttas. Uh, get recharge your batteries, right? Uh, and then as you recharge your batteries uh, and you understand, then you gain that right view again. You are informing your mindfulness uh, and it enables you to continue that living with kindness and living in the right way in daily life. Uh. So this is uh, the first thing, right? Uh, The first aspect of supporting mindfulness. Uh, Be kind, as kind as you possibly can. Change your perceptions, change your ideas of other people to enable you to be kind to everyone in your whole life. Uh, People who you may have perceived as enemies, uh, don't perceive them as enemies anymore. Uh, See them as people worthy of compassion uh, because they are people who maybe are a bit lost in the world if they are your enemies. uh. Yeah, if they are an enemy of you and you are all good people here, then uh, obviously they, have, <laughs> they are doing something wrong, right? Uh, because uh, enemy of a good person is always a bad idea. But don't feel bad if, you have, if people see you as an enemy. Even the Buddha had people who saw him as an enemy. So it's kind of you're in very good company if that happens. Uh, it's just part and parcel of life sometimes. Uh, we should never strive for being liked by everyone uh, uh, we should be, accept that some people are not going to like us and we just shrug our shoulders and, forget, and kind of walk on and forget about it. Uh. So that is the idea of kindness. Uh. Yeah, it's just such an important thing. I think it's impossible to overestimate how important it is. Uh. It is the foundation of, of everything. And uh, Ajahn Isairo, he showed me a suit the other day of a monk called Silava. 
I don't think it occurs anywhere in the suttas, but it occurs in the Terra Gata, the verses of the elder monks. And it was all about the idea of sila, of morality, and how it is the foundation for everything. Yeah, the thing that kind of makes anything, everything possible in the spiritual life and in meditation especially. So that is the one side of uh, the support for mindfulness, yeah? how that makes mindfulness possible. Uh, but there is another side that makes mindfulness possible, and that is right view. Uh, and this may seem, I've already shown you how right view leads to morality, and therefore it leads to uh, mindfulness, but also mind f- uh, right view has a direct impact on mindfulness as well here. Uh. Yeah, and this is kind of really interesting, yeah. yeah because, and why is that the case? First of all, why is it that right view has an impact on your mindfulness? Well, because right view means that you understand that being in the present is powerful. Yeah? It means that you understand that all of this looking for things in the future and the past, actually it is a waste of time. You start to understand the value of the present and the lack of value in the future and the past. And this is what this idea of right view. And specifically, I think one of the one of the thing one of the nice definitions of right view that I also mentioned on this retreat that we just had is that right view it comes down to really one thing here. It comes down to understanding where happiness is to be found in life and where suffering is to be found. And then going for the real happiness instead of going for the fake, hollow. Happiness that cannot be sustained in the long run. Understanding that difference. And if you look at the Buddha's teachings, it is actually quite obvious that that is the case. The Buddha talks about suffering and happiness, the causes of suffering and happiness, the ending of suffering, which is the happiness itself, the path. It is all about suffering and happiness. And so the Buddha claims to have understood the ideas of suffering and happiness all the way to the core, all the way to the bottom that is really what right view is about. So because right view is about suffering and happiness, and because we don't really understand, remember what the, one of the beautiful teachings that I think this is what Ajahn Brahm told me. Ajahn Brahm tells me everything. Yeah, I, I'm just parroting, parroting what Ajahn Brahm says. So I say, but that's good, yeah, because I have a lot of respect for Ajahn Brahm. So even if I can just say exactly what he says, I should still, still be happy with myself. You might not be too happy because you hear exactly the same thing, but... Anyway, you're going to have to live, <laughs> live with that. So one of the things he says, and this is found in the suttas, also only in a couple of places, it's a bit obscure. Sometimes people ask me to give talks on the obscure suttas in the Pali Canon. So here you are, this is an obscure little thing. But it's very powerful. And this is the idea, and you will have heard this before, I'm sure, that what the ordinary people say is happiness the noble ones say is suffering here. Yeah? And what the ordinary people say is suffering here, the noble ones say is happiness. We have got things completely the wrong way around. We don't really understand the world problem. That's what the Buddha is saying here. And we need to kind of re-establish, to reassess where happiness is to be found. And this is why right view is so important, right? Because it starts to guide you in that direction. You start to challenge some of your assumptions where happiness and suffering really are to be found. And when those assumptions are challenged and you start to realize actually the Buddha is onto something here, then that starts to support your entire outlook. And then also it supports meditation practice itself. So you can imagine if you are meditating, yeah, yeah, and you think that happiness is to be found in some kind of future goal that you have, yeah, I'm going to work really hard, I'm going to get into this wonderful relationship, I'm going to have a house like this, I'm going to have a successful career, I'm going to save the world from climate change, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do all of these things, I'm going to, you know, and that is your idea of the world. Well, then you are going to think about those things because those things is where you, f- you, you think happiness is to be found. And so your mind will hang out in the future and it will find an interest in those things. But if you understand that all of that is just a pie in the sky, and that all your fantasies in your mind about how things are going to turn out, actually they're hollow. Things never turn out the way you think they're going to turn out. The dream that we have about the world is always false, 
I know that, yeah. I, when I was a young, young man, when I was at university, I was dreaming about, yeah, I'm going to have this kind of girlfriend. Uh, I'm going to have this kind of job. Yeah, I'm going to be really successful. Because you always, I don't know, I, I was quite conceited, I suppose, when I was young. Maybe I'm still conceited, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> and uh, you have all these ideas. And, of course, things turn out very, very differently, as you can see. Yeah? And <laughs> so that's kind of how things tend to go, yeah. So the future is just this idea of that we're going to create a happy future for ourselves by going into the world, by doing things in the world, by creating relationships, crea creating happiness in the world of the five senses. It is hollow because the world of the five senses is out of control. It's never going to happen. This is right view. This is practical right view. It is not right view about rebirth. Okay, rebirth may be true, but it's hard to really grasp this is right view that you can grasp right here, right now. And so if you reject the idea of creating happiness for yourself in the future by doing things in the world, if you understand that that cannot really happen, yeah, not the way you think anyway, then you start to value the present moment instead. Forget about that. That's not how you actually do it. That's not how you create future happiness. And then you realize actually the way to create future happiness is actually how you live now. If you live with kindness in the present moment, if you live with a degree of compassion for the world, if you live with understanding, yeah, that is where you're actually creating the future. Why is that? Because that kindness, when you live well, when you live in the right way, you feel good about yourself in the future. This is like what we call kamma, but kamma is really just the link between what, how we intend and how we feel about ourselves. And this is something every one of you can see. Intend, really be kind to somebody, and you know that it feels incredibly nice, right? I don't know about you, but sometimes it's like your heart opens up and you want to give something to the whole world, and you give something and it feels just... Marvelous, you know this is a real spiritual feeling here, and it's extraordinarily powerful. So notice that that is where you create your future. You create it right here and right now by being kind, by being peaceful, by closing your eyes and watching the breath and enjoying the bliss and the peace. That is how you create the future. So then once you get that, you don't think about the future anymore. Yeah, you close your eyes. You watch the breath and you enjoy the present. And you know that while you are doing that, you're also creating a happy future for yourself. Why think about it? Why try to resolve the problems in the world that are endless, that there is no solution to anyway, when you create the future simply by sitting down and closing your eyes and building up good qualities within her? This is how you create peace in the world. Being sitting and meditating by yourself is not selfish at all. Because when you come out of that meditation, you have a different attitude to things, an attitude that leads to harmony and peace in the world around you. This is how you create a good future for yourself, but even for the world around you and the people around you too. And um, it is very, you know, one of the things that is very fascinating right now is, of course, the wars in the world, and particularly the war in the Ukraine. It is very interesting because uh, this is an example of, you know, suffering in the world, right? Uh, and when you uh, look at that war in the Ukraine uh, and you look at what is uh, happening there, you can see people's reactions to that world. Uh, and some people, they react. And, I, you know, you, when you read an article in some newspaper, you see people reacting and say, they are destroying my future uh, my future is being killed by this war in, in Ukraine, yeah? And so because my future is being destroyed by this world in U Ukraine, uh, this is terrible what is going on here. Uh? This is kind of one side of things, yeah? one kind of reaction to what is happening in that world, in, in what is happening in Ukraine. Uh? But then there is another side. There was other people that were saying that, actually, now that there is war in Ukraine, uh, I feel much better, yeah? It's a, now I suddenly feel there's a sense of meaning to life. I feel I'm getting together with my friends and we're kind of working together, you know, in harmony, in peace. In Well, maybe peace is the wrong word, but <laughs> we're working together, you know, towards something greater, some larger good. And we actually, for the first time in our life, we feel really... Uh, kind of bonded uh, and we feel that we are we have an understanding for each other and compassion for each other as a team uh, 
And what they are really saying is that for the first time maybe in their life, they're actually building up spiritual qualities. It took a war, it took that external shock for them to start building up the spiritual qualities within her. So there's a lot of suffering in the world, or in a war, a lot of problems, but sometimes there is also some good qualities arising from it. And so is a war, is it good or bad? Or is it who knows? <laughs> and if a war is good or bad, on the macro level, you can say it's bad, but really good or bad should not be measured on a macro level. Good and bad should be measured on an individual level. So is the war going to be good or bad for an individual? It depends entirely on your attitude to what is going on. If your attitude is, oh no, they are destroying my life, yeah? my future is ruined because of this war, well then, yes, it's going to be bad for you because then you might act accordingly. But if your view is that, well, wars, this is part of the world, there's always going to be war, yeah? And uh, this is just the way things are. I can't really do anything about it. So I'm going to make the most out of it. I'm going to understand that the world is inherently out of control. There's always going to be more wars. There's always going to be more climate change. There's always going to be COVID. There's always going to be family problems. There's always going to be all of these kind of things. And the more you see that, the more you start to understand, actually, no, we need to focus on the spiritual qualities instead. And some of these people in the Ukraine, they didn't have to even reflect like that. It came automatically. Yeah? Now there are so many problems outside. They automatically started to have more compassion. They automatically started to help people to work for free and do the right thing. Because they understood when the world outside is really falling apart, there's only one other place you can go. That is to the world within. That is where you create those good qualities. So people become almost more spiritual, I don't know if you like that word, but it become more spiritual in a sense, uh, simply by seeing that the world outside is problematic, seeing that there is no safety there, you have no idea where it is going to go next. So this is a, a, the idea of right view. And then you withdraw your interest a little bit in that world. You still engage with it because you have no, no uh, alternative. We have to engage with that world to some extent. Uh, but you withdraw your interest a little bit uh, and you start to understand, no, it is the spiritual values I need to focus on. This is what really matters. Uh, and then you are on the right track. And then, paradoxically, you are creating mindfulness for yourself. This is how mindfulness comes about uh, because you have reduced interest uh, in that world outside. Uh, so right view. And uh, kindness, these are the two things that create, that uh, allow us to be mindful. Yeah? This is how it comes about. Uh, so reflect on these things. Uh, try to understand them from the way the Buddha understood things. Uh, yeah? The idea of right view is really the trying to align our view with the view of the Buddha. Trying to understand the world as the Buddha saw it. Uh, and as we do that, uh, then uh, mindfulness starts to come about uh, and we get this... Uh, feeling that the path is really working for us. So this is the idea of a right view. Yeah, a very important part of a very fundamental part of the Buddhist teachings. So that is one thing we talked about during this retreat. Yeah, I think I talked about it anyway. I kind of, <laughs> some of it to some extent. What else? One of the other uh, I think very interesting things about uh, meditation practice. Uh, this is kind of going to a slightly different topic. Uh, but uh, one of the other, I think, very interesting things about meditation is that uh, uh, very commonly in the Buddhist world, uh, people meditate uh, and they meditate experiencing a lot of pain in their body. Uh, yeah? And this idea of experiencing pain is something that I would not really recommend you to do. Uh, yeah, certainly not developing pain almost on purpose. Uh, yeah, sit longer so you can experience the pain and then you will kind of uh, gain insight into it. Uh, in my experience, that doesn't really work. People never really seem to get much insight. All they do is experience pain ultimately. Okay, you see a little bit about how pain arises and passes away, but it doesn't really lead to any kind of profound change in your consciousness, usually, in my experience anyway. And what is then interesting is that if you start, again, to read the suttas, and especially if you read outside of the Satipatthana Sutta, understanding the process of meditation, 
you start to see that actually you don't really need all this experience of pain in meditation. Yeah? Pain is not really necessary. You don't have to focus it. Focus on pain directly like that. You can change your posture. You can do things differently if the pain becomes obsessive. And this is very clear when you read like things like the mind about mindfulness of breathing, what mindfulness of breathing is about. Because in mindfulness of breathing, everything is about happy feelings. There's no room there for pain. Pain is only talked about in the Satipatthana Sutta. But if you broaden out your understanding, if you read the suttas a bit more broadly, and you see the broader picture, you actually start to realize that, no, I don't actually have to meditate on pain. And that's kind of nice, isn't it? And when you, when you think about it, in fact, this is exactly what the Buddha said from the very beginning. You know, this is kind of what he started out. His very first discourse was about middle way, no need to kind of indulge in pain. And the weird thing is that even though the Buddha said this in the very first discourse, we still do it. So are we, who are we disciples of? Are we disciples of the Buddha? Or are we disciples of uh, some other guru which says, okay, pain is good, yeah, watch the pain. Who, who, where are we placing our discipleship? What, who do we follow? And uh, so the Buddha was very clear, right? Uh, no need for the Atakilamatanu yoga, which is torment, tormenting the body. No, no need to kind of indulge too much in the sensory world. Find that beautiful middle way. Then you are on the right track. Yeah? So don't. No need to focus on pain. And uh, part of the problem, one of the reasons why we are, you know, we are told to focus on pain uh, is because we are told that the idea of meditation uh, is to be aware of what is going on, observing everything that is going on. Uh, and as you observe, then you learn about the phenomenon that you are observing. Yeah? It's one of the classic ways of talking about meditation practice. It is called anupassana in Pali, the idea of seeing along with something. Yeah, one of those critical terminology that you find in the suttas. But actually, it doesn't really mean that. This is kind of a modern interpretation of this. But again, if you read these words of the Buddha very carefully, you realize that anupassana is much more than just observing directly. Anupassana is also about using an act of imagination, for example. Yeah? Like imagining your body, seeing its inner states and inner qualities and all of these kind of things. Yeah? So it's an act of imagination. But Anupassana is also an act of seeing things after the fact. Yeah? Recalling what happened before. And through that recollection, through that retrospection of what happened, then gaining insight into what is going on so if you want to understand pain, it is sufficient to understand happiness because you understand pain through its absence, through recalling what it was like. Now it is gone. Okay, yay, it is gone. Woo, hooray. Yeah, no need to actually observe it directly. Just know it from its absence instead. That's good news. Yeah, no need to kind of meditate on pain. Yeah, and I think this is so fundamentally important. One of the reasons why the spiritual path is supposed to be useful for us is because it enhances the quality of our life. Yeah, when you live well, the idea is that you feel good about yourself. In fact, when you read the suttas, the word of the Buddha is always about, okay, you practice kindness, and the result of practice kindness is what is called the anavajjasukha, the blameless happiness. When you practice the restraint of the mind, it goes even deeper. It's called the Abhisekara Sukha, I think, something like that. Abhisekara, well, I can't remember exactly the word now. It's a kind of fairly rare word. Anyway, so it is another kind of more profound happiness called the unsolid happiness, not, un, not solid by the kind of bad mind states. Yeah? So the whole purpose of the Buddhist path is to enhance the quality of our life. But sometimes people live Buddhism in such a harsh way that it actually detracts from the quality of life. Yeah, It is a bit like if I really practice hard now and I experience a lot of pain, then eventually down the track I will experience happiness. Yeah, Maybe when I die, yeah, it becomes a bit, bit more like Christianity. When I die, then I go to God, so even if I experience lots of pain in this life, I will kind of be heading in the right direction. But the Buddhist path is not like that. The whole purpose of the Buddhist path is to enhance the quality of our life from the get-go, from the very beginning. 
So be very careful with practices that actually reduce, lead to a reduction in quality of life, whereby you feel more negativity, more pain, more problems, more of all these kind of things. Because we want this path to be enriching and making us better human beings. And when you feel happy in your life, chances are you will also be more kind and caring to the people around you. This is the right way of thinking about the Buddhist path. Yes, there will be times when maybe you feel not 100% happy. No one is going to be 100% happy all the time. Yeah. Sometimes you have to be kind and maybe you don't really feel like it. I'm not saying you should look for happiness all the time. But what I'm saying, there should be a general trend yeah, that these things lead to a better mental state, a better quality in your life. Then you're practicing the Buddhist path in the right way. And this is why this path is so beautiful, why it is so powerful. This is how we should really sell. Yeah, I guess I'm a salesman of Buddhism. Yeah, being a Buddhist monk is kind of one of the one of the <laughs> one of the jobs you have as a Buddhist monk. Yeah, and um, but this is really what we need to sell. We need to sell that this actually, if you want real happiness in life, this is how you go about it. You don't go about it in the wrong way. You go about it in a way where it actually works. You need to work on your inner life. Because the external world is out of control. Uh, yeah? And the way to work on your inner life is to develop uh, these good qualities uh, within her. So that's what you do. Uh. So how do we do all of this? And then, yeah, then when mindfulness finally is established, uh, then what do you do? Well, then you start watching the breath. Uh, yeah? Watching the breath is really how we do satipatthana practice. Uh. Yeah, the suttas are not entirely clear about how we're supposed to do satipatthana. Well, actually they are, but it's only clear in one way, and that is watching the breath. Very often we get very complicated ideas about satipatthana practice, watching the feelings in the body, being aware of your mind states and all of that. But ultimately, according to the suttas, there's only really one method for practicing satipatthana, and that is watching the breath. So when your mindfulness is established through right view and good conduct. Yeah, when you understand that, actually, forget about all the pain. Let's try to just be at ease with the body instead. And then mindfulness becomes established. You start to become aware of the breath. Being able to feel the breath becomes easy for you. And when you can just sit back and you can relax and you can allow the breath to be, yeah, and you are naturally aware because the breath is always present, then things start to happen. Things start to develop. For the first time in your life, you're just sitting back and the breath is just present. And then, as you are present with the breath, the breath develops. It becomes more and more peaceful, yeah? gradually, stage by stage, calming down, calming down, calming down. This is one of the ways that you know you're meditating in the right way. Things are calming down, becoming more and more peaceful. Then, not only are they becoming more peaceful, they're becoming more joyful. Yeah, joy and peace together is getting pretty good. More and more joyful. The happiness becoming more and more subtle, more and more refined, more and more powerful as the peace and the joy and the happiness build up together. Now you really know you're on the right track. You know you're on the right path. This is what mindfulness does to you. Cheapest creepers, mindfulness. Why didn't I develop this a long time ago? This is really cool stuff. And as your mind gets more and more still, more and more happiness, you are approaching this thing we call samadhi. Sati, satipatthana, the purpose of satipatthana is to take you to samadhi. One of those very important things in Buddhism that is often, again, overlooked. But this is what sati does. Happiness and stillness conjoined, drawing you in to the object of meditation because the object is so powerful you cannot avoid focusing on the object. And that's how samadhi, the stillness of the mind, the unity of the mind comes about because the mind is not interested in anything else in the whole world. And then samadhi comes out of sati. This is the purpose of satipatthana. And you may think, but aren't we supposed to have insight? Isn't satipatthana all about insight? Sure, yes it is. But the point is that insight and stillness, peace, and insight and understanding are two sides of the same coin. They're not really distinguishable. There is no such thing as vipassana meditation. I'm going against the whole world. Yay, against the whole world. I love that. <laughs> no, not the whole world. There are exceptions, right? 
But there is also no such thing as samatha meditation. That too doesn't exist. This whole idea of kind of pulling this apart and having vipassana on one side and samatha on the other is just a misunderstanding of reality. Vipassana meditation is a good marketing tool, yeah? Because we have the insight meditation, wow, that's what I want, yeah? It sounds really good, insight meditation. But the point is, insight and calm are two sides of the same coin. They cannot really be distinguished. And if you think about it, you know that's true. Because when you are calm, you see things clearly. When you see things with clarity, yeah, that, okay, seeing things with clarity means by definition that you let go of things. And when you let go, you feel peaceful. So these are two sides of the same coin. They come out of the same causes. The causes are letting go of defilements. Letting go of defilements is the same as kindness, right? It comes out of this. And because they come out of the same source, the same foundation, they have to develop together. So when you are developing the breath, when you are developing the beautiful peace of the mind, when you are developing the bliss of meditation, it is not just samatha, it is not just calm, it is also vipassana. Yeah, the two arise together. When you get into a deep state of samadhi, you are not just developing stillness, you are also developing vipassana. Which is kind of cool, right? Deep state of samadhi is also vipassana. It is interesting. It is in one sutta, in many suttas, it is called the um, Alangarya Nanadasana Visesa. Yeah, this is, the, the, this is what the jhanas are called, the deep samadhi. Alangarya Nanadasana Visesa, a distinction in knowledge and vision, worthy of the noble ones. Yeah, knowledge and vision. The, the, the uh, jhana states, the samadhi is called knowledge and vision. It is the same, basically, as the noble states, which are called by the same word. So you're developing all of these things. Yeah, all of these things coming together powerfully. Both samatha and vipassana coming together. This is one of the very important understandings that comes out of reading the Satipatthana Sutta in the right way. Yeah, understanding it in the right way, reading between the lines, not, not so much between the lines, reading each line properly, rather, rather than between the lines, uh, seeing everything that is there, studying the sutta with care, yeah? looking at other versions of the same sutta, knowing actually what is going on, comparing it with the rest of the suttas, uh, having a broad vision of what the Dhamma is about. Uh, you start to understand Satipatthana Sutta also is also about Samatha, and vipassana, not one or the other. And it comes out through watching the breath. You go into that beautiful stillness of the mind, the powerful bliss that comes from samadhi. And lo and behold, when you come out on the other side, that is when you can have the real profound insight that the Buddha was talking about. This is how the path works. So, enjoy the path. <laughs> Have a good time. Be kind. Have a right view. Come back to these teachings whenever you can. Whenever you start to feel a bit uninspired, come back to these marvelous teachings of the Buddha. Allow them to enhance the quality of your life, not detract from your life experience. And then you're going to be on the right path. So, best of luck, everyone. That's all I'm going to say today. <laughs> so, uh, we can... Shall we ask some questions, uh, Edmund? Is that a good idea? So if anyone has any questions or comments or disagreements or outright arguments, then uh, please fire away. Now is the chance. Um. So how, 10 minutes, 15 minutes? Yeah. 10 minutes, yeah, okay, yeah. Right, okay, please, Five. who is the brave enough to be the first person to ask question? Liv, okay, wonderful. <laughs> Good morning, Arjan. Good morning, Liv. Thank you for your kindness in coming to teach us. Um, yesterday I was reflecting on what you were saying in the last session last, when uh, Lena asked you about um, stream entry and 
I can remember you saying a stream mantra fully understands, but then I can't remember what you said they fully understand. Okay, so they fully understand the nature of uh, body and mind, yeah? Four Noble Truths, the three characteristics, non-self, impermanence and these things. They understand fully, basically they have the right view, they understand where happiness is to be found in the world and where suffering is to be found in the world. And one of the parts of that, they understand like the ending of things, right? I think I may have said that yesterday. They understand why the ending of things is happiness. This is mm-hmm. kind of the, kind of this is, and this is why the Buddha's teaching is so radical, because we often think of getting things and starting things as happiness. But the Buddha says ending and relinquishing is really where real happiness is to be found. So this is kind of a very important part of it. I can't remember what I said yesterday, it's a long time ago already, but something yes. like that. <laughs> Yeah. No, thank you for that. Yeah. And also, if you have uh, an aspiration to be a stream enterer, is that a negative craving or can that be considered positive craving? Um, I, I, if you have an aspiration, it should be kind of really in the background. It shouldn't be something that you kind of bring mm. to mind a lot. It should be something that you know you really want to aspire to deep down, uh, yeah. but not really think about too much. Uh, there's a da- big danger with in Buddhism, with craving for states and craving to achieve things. Uh, but really, put that in the background and crave, crave for the causes instead. Uh, so crave, better to yeah. focus on sila and metta and karuna. Yeah, crave to be kinder. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, thank yeah. you very much, okay. Arjun. Thanks so much, Liv. Yeah. <laughs> good morning. Good morning, yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, what, how, how do we, like, as lay people, um, how do we deal with that, that tension at times where we, we do have, I guess, the desire to um, find that, that true happiness that you were talking about, but we also feel a tension with our worldly, mm. <laughs> with our worldly lives as well. So, I mean, I'll give you an example, mm. me and my fiancé were recently discussing about having our first kid. Um, mm. Obviously, unless things drastically change, I'm not going to be a monk anytime soon. <laughs> um, so yeah. Yeah. I, I guess how do we engage with those worldly things where ultimately, yes, that's not where the, the true happiness trademark is to be found? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah thanks. Thank you for that. That's a, I think that's a very good question. And I, what I'm saying here, I'm not kind of, putting monastic life up against lay life. That's not really kind of the point. Uh, The point is rather how we live our monastic life, how we live our lay life. That's really what it is about. uh, So there is no, there doesn't have to be a massive contradiction between these things. uh, And if you have a child, then okay, you know, that's what you do. So that's what, that's what you make, that decision what you make. But once you make that decision, make something out of it, which is more spiritual than worldly. Yeah, take it as an opportunity to practice a spiritual path uh, with kindness, with love, with care, with compassion, with understanding. Bring the child up in a good way. Uh. I'm always, sometimes people say, oh, we shouldn't have children because there's too many people in this world already. Yeah? So it's going to kind of create, uh, create problems. Uh. And uh, th- there is some truth to that. But on the other hand, we need to remember that a lot of uh, children that come into this world, they will come into this world anyway. If they don't come to you, they come to someone else, right? Because it is, because it is the craving that gives rise to rebirth. A child doesn't, you can't stop someone get reborn by not having a child. They will still get reborn somewhere. So if you are a good person, you're a good dad, and your fiancé is a good mom or whatever, you can bring someone into the world which actually become a, they become a blessing for, the, for themselves, they become a blessing for you, become a blessing for everyone. And then you have done something good in the world. Uh. But if they get reborn in some dodgy family, yeah, then... <laughs> no, I don't... So whatever you do, make it into a spiritual path. And uh, this is really, for me, the critical thing is that if you have a career, if you have a family life, if you have hobbies, all of that needs to be integrated into your spiritual practice. Uh. Yeah, be kind to everyone. Uh. Don't allow anyone to be an enemy. As a spiritual person, you shouldn't have any enemies. Yeah? There's no need to have any enemies in this world. Uh, everyone is a potentially a, or everyone is a suffering being. Yeah? Everyone is walking around in darkness. They don't, can't really find the way out. They're trying desperately to find the way out, and they make all these missteps, uh, and they become 
say bad things as a consequence of the suffering in their own life. Oh, it's just such a mess. Yeah. Have compassion for goodness sake. That's kind of the right way there. Because that is really what is needed in this world. There's so, so much lack of seeing clearly and kind of doing things in the right way. So, yeah, no, don't, I, don't, I don't mean to kind of... When I say this, I'm not really putting lay life against monastic life. I mean, I think monastic life is great, but that is not the point. The point is how do we do the most out of our situations, regardless of what that situation is. That is really the point. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ajahn. Um, just while people may be preparing any other questions, there are some questions. There are a lot of questions online, um, but I might just, since we're running out of time, just go straight to the ones which are relevant for today's topic, um, and we'll see how we go with time. Mm. Now, the first one is uh, sort of related. If one does not subscribe to a religion, but he/she still regularly practices samatha. Would it still help him or her during the dying process? Uh, yes, I, of course. Yeah, I don't, do not have to subscribe to religion. I, you know, I mean, for me, one of the kind of interesting questions is whether Buddhism is a religion at all. It really depends on your definition of religion, right? Uh, but if, for me, Buddhism is just a matter of reality. This is how the world works. There is rebirth, there is suffering in certain ways, and, and that's really it. I don't really necessarily consider it religion. But uh, whatever, even if you don't call yourself a Buddhist, if you call yourself an atheist, you can, if you live well, uh, if you live with peace, uh, of course, it's going to have a benefit on you. Uh, and it's going to, yes, and you're going to have a better death as a consequence because you're going to feel better, you can relax when you die, uh, and all of these kind of things. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, one of the things I recommend people when they die is kind of get everyone to leave the room, yeah, and just relax on your own. <laughs> Don't have too many people. I know sometimes it is said, you know, have people around your bed when you die and say goodbye, but I think sometimes that just leads to attachment. Uh, sometimes the best way to die is a time just to let go of everything, yeah, and allow everything to be and just enjoy the solitude. I mean, you're moving off into solitude anyway. So you've got to get used to it. So I get used to that uh, at the very end and enjoy the peace uh, and build up some, you know, that uh, sense of letting go before you're forced to let go anyway by, by the process of dying. Yeah. So yes, if you do it well, you will lead to samatha when you die, whether you are a Buddhist, if you're a Muslim, if you are an atheist, if you believe in Thor and Odin, doesn't matter. All of those things yeah. will be the same. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Ajahn. <laughs> Ajahn Brahmali, <clears throat> excuse me, you said there is no moment, but rather just the present. Can we understand the breath in that way too? Is there a separation between the in and out, or is it just flow? Uh, I, it, I think it, ultimately it is just flow. Yeah, I mean, you can call it, you can, you can call it both ways, I think. It's just a matter of... Uh, how you think about it. I mean, there is obviously a difference between in-breath and out-breath. So it is a kind of a moment there when it stops. For some people, the breath can stop for quite long time as in between the two. So you can consider it in both ways, as a kind of flow or as a stopping. But the reason why I don't like the idea of moments is that the idea of momentariness is something that comes from later Buddhism. It comes especially in the Abhidhamma. The Abhidhamma is not the word of the Buddha. And it's this idea that you can divide the world up into discrete entities. Either you can be discrete entities in terms of different mind states. Yet one mind state, dick. Another mind state, dick, 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 dick. And there's a billion dicks you know, in a second or whatever. And so you divide the world up both into mind states and physical states and then you divide time up also into discrete states and this is kind of the Abhidhamma's idea and that's where this idea of momentariness comes from and sometimes to get away from that it's better just to think of the present if you are present right here and now you don't experience moments what you experience is flow yeah you experience kind of things moving on by themselves you're just aware of flow Especially the more deep the samadhi is, you don't experience moments of samadhi, mind moments, you experience a flow, a continuity of bliss and awareness. That's how we experience things. So I think the idea of presence is actually closer to the Buddhist, the Buddha's idea, and that the idea of moments is an 
infiltration by later ideas into how we talk about uh, Buddhism. That's why I don't really like it so much. Uh. Thank you, Ajahn. Are there any more questions in the room? Yeah, thank you. Yes. Good morning, Bhante. Good morning. Uh, I have a, a theoretical question, maybe. Yeah. Uh, when in suttas, uh, samadhi is being described, mm -hmm. it mentions about first jhana, second jhana, etc. Yeah. But uh, nowhere it mentions about uh, object of meditation, like... Yeah, yeah. Uh, why is that? Can you please explain? Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's interesting, right? That's why it doesn't say you first jhana on the breath, first jhana with metta. It just says first jhana, and uh, and the reason is because you go beyond objects at that point. Uh, yeah, you have actually gone into a state that actually the object has come become irrelevant, uh, because jhana is vivicheva kamehi. Uh, yeah, vivicheva kamehi is the Pali word. Vivicheva means separated from, uh, and kamehi it. Karma usually means the sensory world, yeah, but uh, or it means the sensual desire or whatever. But karma has two. There's a singular and a plural. And what is in the singular, it means desire because desire is singular, right? Usually, and in the sutta, desire is always singular. So in the plural, it has a different meaning. It means the objects of the world. So there is no longer any sensory input. Yeah, at all. And that's why there's also no object. The mind is fully focused on one thing, and that thing is bliss. Yeah? And bliss is a different kind of object. Yeah? And the experience in the first jhana will be the same, regardless which object you come from. And that's why it doesn't mention that. So what it sometimes talks about, it talks about samadhi based on the breath. It talks on samadhi based on metta. But at that point, you basically have the same experience as everyone else. You come to samadhi. Yeah. Thank you, Bhante. You are very welcome. <laughs> um, the next question, Ajahn, is can meditation be fruitful in a context of noise around us? Um, yes, can be. Uh, it, it is... Um, not the ideal environment, but uh, very often a lot of the noise is internal, not external. And you can dial down the internal noise, even though there is external noise there. And that dialing down of the internal noise is always nice, yeah, regardless of, a, of the external things. And uh, you will notice that the noise outside is, if you, it's, sometimes it's actually worse if you're not really mindful yourself. If you're fully mindful of the noise outside, you can kind of hang out with it. It can be there, it doesn't bother you too much. So, uh, uh, so even though it is a problem for really deep meditation, uh, for letting go of the initial inner chatter, uh, becoming more peaceful and more calm, meditation is always useful regardless of how much noise there is in the external environment. But in the future, we're going to have a retreat center at Newbury. Is that right? Uh, there's, there's rumors. Uh, is that right, Adrian? That would be cool, right? Because here, we have to admit that we, while we were doing this retreat, there was someone working just in this little terminus lane over here, and they were drilling into the concrete, and they were using kind of this kind of diamond source cut in the concrete. It was very noisy sometimes. So we hope, can you promise none, none of those things in, uh, in Newbury? Can we have... <laughs> Well, all the recordings, right? Yeah. So we, it's going to be better, yeah. So we really, so we welcome you to Newbury next year, and hopefully there will be lots of various kinds of retreats up there, which would be marvelous to have your own retreat center, yeah. So that's a that's a wonderful thing. Even better, no external noise, and hopefully not so much internal noise either when you when you go there. Yeah? So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's up to it's up to as an Nisarno, he's the boss. So I'm just uh, I'm, I'm the slave today, so uh, yeah. <laughs> Five minutes to eleven. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. So apologies yeah. to the people who've posted questions online that we weren't yeah. able to answer all your questions today. But um, a lot of people have asked questions. But thank you, Ajahn, for all your yeah. sharing yeah. of your wisdom. There's only one way to get rid of all questions, that is to become peaceful within. That's the only way, so that's kind of the path forward. <laughs> okay, everyone, so that is all for today. Very nice to see you all again, and I wish you all the very best.
be kinder. <laughs> and then we'll see you again at some time in the future, I'm sure. So we'll finish up by doing the Arahang. Yeah? yeah? Okay, let's do that. Yeah, if you wish to take part in the Arahang Samasambuddha, you are very welcome. We'll do that next time.